Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. I greatly appreciate Pastor Josh filling in this week while uh, Pastor Dan Davis and his wife Emily are away with their family on vacation. And so thank you. Thank you for also, Brady, that was an excellent update from the student ministry. It made me uh, want to go back and redo being a youth pastor. So that was just awesome. Not really, but uh, uh, that was just, that was terrific. Man, you don't realize what all's going on behind the scenes here a lot of times. And so it's just wonderful that we could celebrate with these uh, young people who've graduated and uh, celebrate with them what God is doing in their lives. Well, again, I want to welcome you to our service this morning. I also want to welcome you to an opportunity to read God's Word and and study it together. And I also want to welcome you to an opportunity for a second chance in your life. Because that's really what we're talking about today is how Jonah the runaway prophet from God received a second chance from God. I mean, this, let's face it, he's commanded by God to go and travel to the city of, of Nineveh, the Assyrians, the mortal enemies of, of, of Israel, enemies of God, and, and God wants to give them a message of judgment that they might hopefully turn around and repent, make that spiritual U-turn and come back to God. And Jonah doesn't want to do that. He runs the other way. As far away as he possibly can, he winds up getting swallowed by a fish when he's thrown overboard. We've talked about that and read that up, read about that, and, and we've said that in the story of Jonah, the big miracle is not a man miraculously, miraculously surviving what is humanly impossible and biologically impossible to survive inside the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, we don't know how that happened. That's not the big miracle of the story. That's the one we all focus on, get excited about, teach in Sunday school, all those flannel graph drawings and things like that that we've used over the years to teach our kids. That's the one that we're all excited about. But that's not the big miracle. The big miracle is how God is willing to extend his undeserved mercy to us when we've totally failed him, when we have gone the other way and run away because we're all like Jonah. We're all like Jonah in that God has a plan for our lives, but we don't like it, and so we tend to go in the opposite direction and run the other way. And we've done that at one time or another in our life. And God extends his undeserved mercy to us, and he gives second chances so that we truly can know him and follow him and be accepted by him and and really experience the joy and blessing of living life in harmony and in in sync with him, if we can say it that way, and in the flow of what he's doing in life as well. So today, we're going to pick up our story, the story of Jonah, and we're reading in chapter 3. And as we read in chapter 3 of the story, this is on page 775, if you'd like to follow along, but we're talking about God's undeserved mercy and the fact that amazing things happen when we turn to God's mercy, when we actually turn to Him and go in His direction instead of running away from Him. Jonah finally learns how to obey God and go God's way. The people of Nineveh are offered a second chance as well. Remember, they were a violent, oppressive, wicked people, uh, just oppressing and enslaving the other nations and peoples around them. They were just horrific 
uh, what they boasted and bragged about, what they took national pride in, how they, how they tortured and oppressed and enslaved the other peoples, how they saw themselves so arrogant and superior to others. And God's going to rain down his judgment on them, and he offers them a, a second chance to get it right. And believe it or not, these wicked enemies of God, these wicked enemies of Israel, take God up on that second chance, and they do make that spiritual U-turn and they experience God's undeserved mercy. It's a powerful lesson for us of what it means to truly turn to God and experience His undeserved mercy. I'd like you to follow along as we read. Again, page 775. It's Jonah chapter 3. Listen while I read. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out, against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose up and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he proclaimed, he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish." When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jonah gets a second chance. He travels to Nineveh. He's got to go about 500 miles from Jerusalem overland to the city of, of Nineveh, one of the most prominent cities in ancient Assyria. And as he gets to that city, and as he's traveling there, God has been saying, this is what I want you to say to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah goes to this great impressive city, and he begins preaching the word there, declaring to it the message of God. It says that Nineveh, this is in verse three, was a great city an exceedingly great city. It literally is a city that is great to God. Literally, that's what it is. And it could be translated in a sense of an intensifier, something that makes it uh, even greater than you can imagine because God thinks it's great too. But it also just simply means that God considers this city valuable. This city is important, not just because of its size, but because it's important in his plan. It's important because he cares about the people of Nineveh. And we're going to see that in chapter Four as well when we read through the conclusion of the saga of, of Jonah. 
But here, Jonah comes to this city and the author of this story is saying the city is so big that it would take you three days to travel through it. And archeologists, they go back and forth and say, well, it's not really that big. It's only actually seven miles in circumference. You can walk that in a day. You know, if your, your feet are toughened up and you got the right shoes, you can do that. You know, some of us, it might take three days, but you know, it, you, you can get around it. So they say, well, maybe it includes the suburbs, the other towns that are part of Nineveh proper, and that may be as well. It might be that, you know, it just it takes three days to go visit every neighborhood and village and, and uh, city square within the, within the city, whatever it is exactly. The author's trying to impress upon us that this is a big city with lots of people and it's gonna take a long time for Jonah to really preach the message there. Jonah shows up and he's been given a message that in English is only eight words long. In Hebrew, it's even less, it's only five words. And the message is this, would you just read it with me? This is, how would you like to memorize this for an evangelism program, okay? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You know, nothing like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, none of that. None of this is, you know, the, the Romans road, you know, you are a sinner and you know you need to repent and Christ died for you and if you believe, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, you know, some sort of four or five point evangelism outline, nothing like that. All Jonah starts declaring as he walks into the city is the word that God has given him. And the word is just simply this, yet 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That word overthrown is literally the idea of overturning something, flipping it over. Like Jesus in the temple, flipping over the tables of the money changers. Like what you do when you flip an omelet or a pancake or something like that. You just flip it over. When you turn a mattress over in your house, when you're changing the bed, you flip it over in that way. And Jonah is saying to the people, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be over. It's going to be overturned. What's interesting about this word and the readers of, the Jewish readers of this story, they would, they would get that there's a double meaning there. It's a play on words. Because on the one hand, it's the idea that God is going to come, grab Nineveh by the, by the edges, and just flip the whole thing over, and the city's going to be destroyed. But the word also had this idea of a person saying, you know, I'm going in the wrong direction, and I'm doing the wrong thing, and I need to change, and I'm going to flip over my life and start over. I'm going to turn. I'm gonna overturn my life and start over. What I'm doing is not working. What I'm doing is not right. I know I'm out of favor with God. I know he's not blessing. I know I'm going in the wrong direction and I wanna flip it over and start over. I wanna overturn it that way. And the thing that's amazing is that the people respond to Jonah's preaching. Jonah goes there and he preaches and the people do that. They actually do overturn their lives. They overturn their city. Not in judgment, but in the sense of, look, what we're doing is wrong. We're violent. We're wicked. We, we, we need to get right with this God. This, this foreigner prophet has shown up in this little tiny country on the outskirts of our empire, and, and he's coming and he's declaring this message, and we need, to, we need to repent. We need to overturn our lives. And they start doing that. You might be asking, well, why would they do that? 
I mean, was there some kind of advanced advertising campaign? You know, everybody got something in the mail. Was there advertisements of some kind? How in the world were the people so ready to receive this message and act upon it? Why were they so sensitive to the preaching of Jonah that all he has to do is say eight words, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned? Why do they respond? This is an important reminder that God is working in the lives of the people around us just as he's working in your life. If you can think about it, there were people that were praying for you, witnessing to you, encouraging you, and when you finally heard the message that you needed to trust Christ, you, it made sense and you believed. Whether it was your mom and dad who witnessed to you, whether it was a Sunday school teacher who shared her faith, whether it was a coworker who you looked at their life and you said, there's just something different about them. I wonder what it is. And you begin asking and investigating. God is preparing the soil for the seed of the word so that when we share the word, when we let go of the seed and give it out, people are prepared to receive it. Sometimes God's still working in the seeds, the soil's not prepared fully, ready to receive it. And we need to be patient, but we keep spreading the seed. Now, in the case of the people of Nineveh, this great impressive city that's part of this great, powerful, oppressive empire, uh, there were several things that were going on. There had been a, a famine for several years. There was political instability. Instead of one big unified empire with a central powerful king that was ruling over the whole empire, there were these regional uh, governors and they were fighting and bickering among themselves as to who was in charge. And so there was a rivalry and people kind of said, there's just all this political instability and what's going on and we don't know. And, and uh, it's, it sounds like our country at election time a lot of times. And so, you know, what's, what's going on politically? There was this instability. There was this, this famine that had, that had plagued them. There were other uh, rampant spreading diseases, plagues as well, that were, were troubling and killing many of the people. And on top of all that, there had been a solar eclipse around the time that Jonah was there within just a few years of him coming, a solar eclipse. And you remember that in the ancient world, these solar eclipses, when the moon passes in front of the sun and blocks it out and makes it shadow like many of us experienced last year when we had our solar eclipse, it was just something that was frightening. It was a portent of something very dramatic was about to happen and change and usually people they kind of kick the portent up the command ladder of authority and so they say well you know it's not about my life it must be about the king because he's like the son you know he's the greatest and so that's an omen about the king the king is going to be deposed by a lesser fool some fool is going to take his place and so there was all this speculation what's going to happen is this, is this going to be the overturning of our empire? Is, this, is our city going to fall? And people were frightened, and they began looking at this, and they were very superstitious, and they were just wondering. I heard recently, this is very sincere, a person in our community, when we had all those thunderstorms and heavy rains recently, you know, several inches in a couple days, they, they were thinking, is this a sign of the end of the world? You know, if you're troubled by stuff on the news, if you're troubled by things that you hear, you talk among people and you worry about all this kind of stuff and you get scared. The people of Nineveh are scared. Even though they're the most powerful empire of that time, they are frightened. 
down to their toes. And Jonah steps on the scene and he just walks a day's distance into the city and begins preaching. And there's nothing flowery, impressive, commanding about what he says except it's the word of the Lord and the Lord has prepared the people to receive this message. And all Jonah has to say, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And the people will say, oh, oh no, what are we going to do? What, 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 do I, what do I do? We, we, we should start praying to Jonah's God. We, we, we need to start fasting, stop eating food. We need to take off our fine, spectacular clothing that are so fancy and impressive. And we need to put on the clothing of poor people and penitent sinners and guilty people. We need to put this rough, coarse clothing, dirty clothing on. That's what sackcloth is. And, and, and we need to do this. And, and there's this popular revival breaking the city of Nineveh. People start doing this on their own. There's no authority saying you've got to do it. It's people listening and they start talking among themselves and they start turning to God. They start overturning their lives. And as they overturn their lives, things began to happen. I don't know how much longer Jonah preached. I don't know if he kept preaching for a couple more days. I don't know, but he preached one day and that was enough. And the people started overturning their lives. It says in verse 6, and, and, and by the way, notice what it says in verse, four, verse 5. They called a fast, put on sackcloth, and it says that they did this from the greatest down to the least. Everybody was doing it. It wasn't just the down and outers responding. It was the elites, it was the intelligentsia, it was the powerful people, it was the military establishment, it was the educated class, it was the industrial class, it was all the, the rich and powerful, the artists, everybody was involved in this turning. From the greatest to the least, all people. In fact, when you would walk into Nineveh, after Jonah had preached there, you couldn't tell who was rich, you couldn't tell who was poor, because everybody was dressed in sackcloth. Everybody was fasting. Everybody was grieving and mourning over their sin and the fact that this judgment was about to come. So there was no distinctions among the different hierarchies in the culture. It says in verse 6 that the word reached the king of Nineveh. And Jonah, as far as we know, didn't go into the king's palace and say, hey, buddy, you better get your act together. He heard about what was happening on the street. And the king of Nineveh, it says that when he heard this word, he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. These four things that the king does. He trades his throne. He's in authority. He trades his throne for the garbage pile. And instead of sitting there like the high and powerful king with his scepter, he sits down on a pile of ashes and trash. And why does he do that? He does that to humble himself. He does that to show that there's another king who showed up. Yahweh, the king of Israel. He's symbolically saying, I'm, I relinquish my throne. And I'm going to sit here on the ashes and grieve. He takes off his royal regalia, his royal robes and clothing, signature, you know, signs of his authority and power, and he lays that all aside, and he puts on the same kind of clothing that everybody else has on, the sign of a, a penitent sinner. 
a poor person, rough and scratchy. He's wearing that. He's just like everybody else. He's humbled himself in this way. He goes even further because he adds to what the people are doing and he understands that there's a deeper issue at stake here. It's not just ceremonially or ritualistically indicating that we want to get right with God so we give up our food and we don't eat anymore and we give up our fine, comfortable clothing and we wear poor people's clothing. And he does even more than that. It says he issues a proclamation along with the other leaders and he says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. I don't know about you. When I don't eat, I get grouchy. Ask Dawn. I start complaining. Our little cat in our house, Zoe, when she, when she first thing in the morning, she comes up, meow, 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 because her, her food dish is empty. And she wants a couple ice cubes. I don't know why she wants ice cubes. <laughs> Can you imagine a herd of cattle not getting any grain? Someone said that you can hear 20 head of cattle that are starving. You can hear them half a mile away mooing. You know, making their noise. The point is, is that here's everybody's suffering. The people are suffering. The animals are suffering. Right away, some of you are saying, no, wait a minute, it's not fair to the animals. You know, the animals didn't cause this problem. The animals are not the wicked ones. They're innocent. How come the animals are included here? That was common in Middle Eastern, ancient Middle Eastern culture. Even today, when you see the funeral of a prominent dignitary, you know, some of you remember when President Kennedy was assassinated and his Funeral services back, some of you are old enough to remember that, when, when President Reagan passed away, President Ford and others, they would have a case on a, a carriage. And the horses were all cloaked in black. And it's a black carriage, and we use black hearses. Not always, I know there's silver and white ones now too, but, but we, we have these symbolic representations that indicate mourning. And so here are these animals and they're giving up their food or food's taken away from them and they're covered with sackcloth and they're doing all this kind of stuff. And I think God is just trying to say, you know what? In all of this, the animals in the story of Jonah are more compliant and more obedient than Jonah is. And so here's the fish obeying God and swallowing Jonah. And then when, you know, three days later, God says, barf up Jonah, and he does. And the fish obeys. And, and here's, here are the animals, and they're mourning, grieving, fasting, showing their repentance. And, and Jonah, you're going to see in chapter 4, is still very, being very stubborn. And even though he's done God's will, he's not really complying with it. And, and there's going to be a plant that grows at God's command. And there was a wind that comes at God's command. And there was a storm that came at God's command. And there was a worm that eats the plant at God's command. And all these creatures are obeying God and doing God's will, but Jonah doesn't. And by extension, the readers of Jonah's story, the Israelites, and by further extension, you and I today, the people who have the choice to overturn their lives and surrender to God's authority and his plan and will. The animals do God's bidding, but humans, we have a choice, and most of the time we don't. 
And that's a humbling rebuke to us. And so here the king says, let everyone, it says, let them cry out mightily to God. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king takes this even further. He says, I realize this is not just some sort of ceremonial, religious appeasement of God. I'm not trying, I'm not asking anyone to try to manipulate God. In the Assyrian uh, religious, theological understanding of how the world works, they knew if there was a, a problem going on in their world or if there was some calamity and disaster, they would try to figure out which of the gods had been offended and then they would offer a certain type of sacrifice, go through a certain kind of ritual, thinking that that would appease the god. Maybe they could manipulate that god or goddess to change their mind and take away the plague or the famine or the other problem or disaster that had occurred. And so it's almost like you know, religious vending machine, you put your money in and pull the lever and you hopefully get the right result. The God that's been offended, we figure that out, we offer the right sacrifice, they take away the, the, the calamity that's befallen us. This king goes further and he says, I don't think that's gonna work here. Let everyone give up and turn away from the evil that is in their hands. You see, the king understands something. He understands that as a culture and as a people, from the highest points of governmental authority down to the lowest person on the street, there is a wickedness and an oppressiveness and a violence and sinfulness among the Assyrians. And he says, you gotta turn away from that. I've gotta turn, we have to turn away from this violence and wickedness that's in our hands. We have to let go of our sin our injustice, our oppression, our self-serving, our rejection of God. We have to let go of that. We have to turn away from that. And then notice what he says in verse nine. Who knows? God may turn. He just might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, literally his burning face. He, the king could just kind of sense like you're, you're out there on a summer day and you're, you're standing out and you, you, know, you have no sunscreen on, no hat, no nothing, and, and that, the, the sun's heat just is bearing down and he says that's what, that's what I feel like God's looking at us, this God that Jonah represents He's looking at us and his face is burning with anger. He's fiercely angry with us. And he's gonna lower the boom if we don't overturn our lives and repent. Maybe, just maybe, he'll turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so we don't perish. You see, God has given a threat to the people of Nineveh and he's threatening to judge and destroy them for the wickedness, the sin it says has reached, the stench of their sin has reached all the way up to the halls of heaven. And he's going to bring his judgment upon this oppressive people. God has to judge sin. He must, he's a just God. He's given them a warning though. 
And he's given them a warning that kind of has this double meaning. If you don't repent in those 40 days, your city is going to be overturned. But if you just overturn your life and let go of the violence and the wickedness, I'll relent and turn back. In a sense, God repents and he doesn't bring the violence against those that he promised to do that. Some people say, you know what, this is just so, it looks like God is arbitrary or capricious. You know, he says he's going to judge them and then he changes his mind. And Can you really trust a God like that? Listen, everywhere in Scripture that God is in a covenant relationship with people like the people of Israel, like you and I as members of the body of Christ, people like Abraham, people like David, those that are in that covenantal relationship with Never, God never breaks his word and he never breaks his promises to them. He never changes. That's called the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so there's this unchangeableness. But God often warns us. God will often say, listen, if you don't change what you're doing, then calamity is coming, judgment is coming, and there's an opportunity for a person to turn back and turn back to God, and God relents and says, I'm not going to judge you because you've done what I've asked you to do. You've overturned your life. You've turned away from sin. You've turned back to me. You've overturned your life. And now the mercy you don't deserve, I'm going to graciously give to you. I will forgive you of your sins. I will restore your broken life. I will give you a new path to follow. I will be with you and never forsake you. I will extend my mercy to you if you just overturn your life. You know, that's the amazing thing. If you overturn your life in repentance, you'll find mercy. And we want God to forgive us, but we don't want to change. And we want God to forgive us, and we want to keep going the way we're going. We don't want to stop our sin, and we want him to forgive us and accept us, but we don't want to stop our sinning. We don't want to stop living life as if he doesn't exist. We, we, don't, we don't want to actually reconcile with the people that we're not getting along with. We don't want to make things right and make amends. We're living in this state of denial that we think we're okay, and we expect God just to forgive us. Because we're, after all, we're just nice people, Right? And this passage is reminding us that there's no forgiveness and there's no mercy and there's no change of life. There's no salvation until we overturn our lives in repentance. You know, so often us preachers, you've done it if you're a small group leader or Sunday school teacher. Anytime you've tried to explain scriptural principles to people. You try to find these analogies to help people understand them without using the big you know, 50 cent theology words. And repentance is one of those words that's familiar, but a lot of times we don't remember or understand what it means. And I've tried to use the analogy of it's making a spiritual U-turn. You turn away from sin and you turn to God. It's a spiritual U-turn, and that works. But that's not what the story of Jonah is saying. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than just making a U-turn. It's an overturning of the life. It's saying, God, I'm not going to live my way anymore. I'm living your way. I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I want to surrender to your will. I'm not going to try to please you and still hang on to this sin. I'm not going to let this habit or hang up rule and control my life. I'm going to let go of it 
Like the king tells the people of Nineveh, I'm going to let go of it so that I can grasp you and hold on to you. You know, some of us are sitting here thinking, I sure hope so-and-so is listening because they need this. What a heathen. You would never say that, of course. But you're thinking it like I do. They really need this. Their life is so messed up. Their life is so messed up. Their family, their marriage, their job, they're, just, they're enslaved. They're just, they're just messed up, messed up, messed up. I hope they're listening because God wants to give them a second chance. And I just want to say to you as I say to me, that if there's anything that you and I are hanging on to that you know offends God, you know is hurting yourself or harming other people, whether it's some kind of destructive habit, whether it's some kind of attitude or way of thinking that's just running yourself down into the ground and harming the people around you. Maybe it's your anger. Maybe it's lust or greed. Maybe it's the bitterness towards someone who's hurt you. Maybe it's the, the, the fear and anxiety that's come from betrayal in the past. Whatever, whatever this is that's controlling your life, he wants to say, he's saying to you, would you just let go of that and let me overturn your life and let go of that? Step out of the denial and into the light and give yourself your will and your life to his care and control. Would you just do that? That's an overturning. And he promises to free and pour out his undeserved mercy upon us. And see, the amazing thing, and this is the real miracle, bigger than the fish, bigger than Jonah surviving the fish. In verse 10 it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. He relented of the disaster that he, would said, that he said he would do to them. And he didn't do it. Nineveh wasn't destroyed. When 40 days were over, the city was still standing. The people were still there. They probably were rejoicing that they hadn't been blown up and overturned. Sadly, Nineveh's gonna quickly forget. And they're gonna become just as violent and oppressive as they were before. They're going to forget the Lord. But judgment is going to come. The book of Nahum talks about this. In about 150 years, Nineveh really is overthrown and destroyed. But they were given a second chance to turn to God. They received God's undeserved mercy. Why? Because they were willing to overturn their lives. You can receive a second chance. You can experience God's forgiveness and mercy if you're willing to overturn your life and deal with whatever it is that's blocking your relationship with God. It was an interesting article I read recently by a, a psychiatrist named Stephen Groz. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but it's G-R-O-S-Z, Groz. And he talks about the phenomena of how people, when they hear a fire alarm, they don't respond. I was, I was at Park City Mall back in January, and I was in a store, and it was a, a cool, gadgety, techie store, and I was there probably with about 100 or so people milling around getting help. It was like the Martin Luther King weekend, 
And I was standing there and all of a sudden the fire alarm went off and the lights started flashing on the wall. You know, so you're hearing this piercing beeping over and over and the lights start flashing. And I'm looking up, I'm in the middle of a transaction for a new computer, this is ridiculous, why are we doing this now? And I'm looking around, I'm looking around, I'm looking around, I'm smelling here, like this, I'm doing all this kind of stuff and nobody's moving, everybody's just like, oh, this happens every day, you know, da, 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 like that. And it's just, it's, it's going like this and I'm, and I'm talking to the sales clerk, I said, uh, should we be getting out of the building or doing anything? Oh no, there's something, duh. He kind of radioed somebody, said, nope, nah, there's, a, there's a glitch with the alarm system in the back. And nobody left the store. People kept walking up and down the, the corridor of the mall. And we all stayed there. Well, Stephen Groves, he says, there's this phenomena. <laughs> it happens all the time where these alarms go off and there really is a fire and everybody just stands there. He talks about how there was a, a soccer match football match, excuse me. In England, back in 1985, there was a fire in the stands. The alarm went off and people stayed to watch the match and they looked over to see the fire and then they'd watch the match and then they'd look at the fire and they'd watch the match and they stayed there and there was nearly 56 people killed because they wouldn't evacuate. There's one even worse. The Beverly Hills Supper Club. It's a nightclub outside of Cincinnati in Kentucky, on the Kentucky side of the Ohio River. The Beverly Hills Supper Club on Memorial Day weekend in 1977, just a couple days before I graduated from high school, they had a fire. And the Supper Club, uh, the actor and uh, TV game show host John Davison was there. And the place was filled. It was about a, a thousand people over capacity for the number of exits that they had, this wooden structure. Fire broke out in the cabaret room and people were trapped. And 165 people there were killed. And investigators, when they were investigating the alarms that went off and the fire and the smell of smoke and people trying to ask people to leave, they said that we are such creatures of habit when these alarms go off that there were actually people standing in line to pay their bill while the fire code, while the fire alarm was going off. We are such, you're saying, what? Settle up later. Why do we do that? I'm not sure I exactly know why. I don't really have this figured out. I just remember what I did at the mall just back in January. I was afraid. Not of the fire, I was afraid of looking like a fool if I leave. You know, here I am, the one guy standing out in the parking lot, where are the fire trucks? What's, what's going on? I didn't want to look like an idiot, I wanted to be cool. And I wanted to blend in with everybody else. I was afraid of, I think we all are, what's, what's gonna happen? You go through that exit, a lot of times when there's a fire and the alarm goes off, people go through the exits that they came in. I don't know if that's superstition or what. But instead of going to the carefully marked exits like they tell you on the airplane or at the movie theater, they, they want to go out the front door because that's the way I came in and that might be the path to danger. Some of it's fear. We don't know what's beyond the other side of that door. What's the weather like outside? What's going to happen? And we're frightened. We like what we know. 
And unfortunately, a lot of us think that we can just live with our sin because we know it and we're familiar and we're comfortable. And the alarm is sounding. I'm not just talking about the alarm that you need to trust Jesus and get saved to be rescued from eternal judgment. But I'm talking about the alarm of, I've got this habit in my life, but I can manage it. My anger's not really that bad. My lust is not really that bad. My, my bitterness is not that bad. You know, my, my debt is, yeah, it's out of control, but I can handle it. I got it. My, my relationship with my spouse or my kids, it's broken. I can handle it. This fear and anxiety that's controlling my life, I can handle it. It's, it's okay. I can live with it. And what God would want to say to you and me through the story of Jonah chapter 3 is just simply the alarm is sounding and Jesus himself is the way of escape. Would you just trust him? Would you just cry out to him and receive the rescue that God is extending to you? A lot of people think that God is just a God of judgment, a mean, angry God. No, he's so merciful to the people of Nineveh. He's offering a second chance. And he just says, if you just turn to me, you'll be rescued. If you're just willing to overturn your life and look uncool and just put your trust in me, I will rescue you and give you the mercy that you don't deserve. I'll give you that second chance to be right with me. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 to the Pharisees who kept demanding, prove it, prove it that you're really the Son of God. Prove it that you're the Son of God. Show us a sign. And Jesus in that moment just exasperated with them, finally says, look, I'm not going to give you any other sign except the sign that Jonah gave to the people of Nineveh, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Yes, he was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. But when Jonah went to Nineveh, the people of Nineveh repented They overturned their lives and they surrendered to God. And somebody greater than Jonah is here. It's me. Are you going to overturn your life for me, Jesus says to those religious leaders. Are you going to overturn your life for me? The one who went to the cross and died for your sins and rose from the dead so that he could give you the undeserved mercy of God to make your life right, to make it whole and holy for him. Jesus is the exit. He's the way of escape. Will you trust him? Will you overturn your life and find the mercy of God? I want to pray with you, okay? Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege of being in your presence this morning. I thank you for the opportunity of of just studying your word today and the privilege of, of just being able to declare it. And Lord, I thank you that you extend your mercy and you offer a second chance. If we would just be honest with you that everyone here needs to overturn their lives to surrender to you, I pray that we would do that. And I thank you that when we repent in that way, when we make that turn and surrender to you, your mercy, your forgiveness, your help and healing are poured out upon us. Thank you. I pray that, Lord, you would just stir in everyone's heart here today that we would trust in you. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Listen.